Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Thank you for joining me for this episode. This will be the conclusion to the Leon Crane story. So if you didn't listen to the previous episode, I'd highly recommend it. Otherwise, this will mean nothing to you. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my generous and heartbreakingly gorgeous patrons. You guys really motivate me to do more and do better. And I'm currently designing some new stickers and I'm going to be sending one out to all of you. And if you would like to support the show, simply visit my Patreon page. There are quite a few levels to choose from. And there are a bunch of different perks, including bonus episodes and swag. So click the link in the show notes and I look forward to spoiling you with goodies in the mail. And the upper levels get the option of choosing a case from anywhere for me to cover for a Patreon episode, but I'd likely also release it to everybody else. And so far, no one has taken me up on that, but I look forward to requests, and I'd love to research cases that you guys want to hear about. For another order of business, I've mentioned this previously, I'd like to do a listener submitted episode coming up for my two-year anniversary, which will be in May. If you guys want to send me either a case you're interested in, in writing, at least a couple of paragraphs, or if you want to record it yourself, that'd be great. I thought it would be fun to mash up a bunch of people's pet cases or local cases into one episode. And of course, other podcast hosts are very invited to do this as well. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back into Leon's journey. When we last left our intrepid explorer, he had found a cabin with a bunch of supplies which basically helped him stay alive. If he hadn't found it, he probably would have died, which he acknowledged as well. So he had ended up staying at this cabin for quite a few days. There had been bad weather, and he was just kind of resting up, regaining his strength to get ready for the next big push. And while he had seen a bunch of signs of human life, he still had not seen a single other person. And at this point, he may have been super depressed to learn that his journey was not even halfway done. He had also taken an exploratory journey of a couple of days and found a few other cabins that had some supplies, but they weren't nearly as nice as the one that he'd been sleeping in, and they did not look recently inhabited at all. But they did give him optimism that he might eventually come across someone that was still living in the area. He spent even more time back at Phil Burrell's cabin trying to come up with the best plan. And really, if he hadn't had his family to worry about mourning him, he likely would have stayed at that cabin until spring. There was plenty enough food, but he just didn't want to leave his parents in that emotional state. He wanted to tell them that he was okay. He would later learn that his parents had received a letter in mid-February, which gave a detailed explanation of the disappearance of the Iceberg Inez and the crew. It did not describe the men aboard as 
KIA killed in action, but just missing in action. And it gave a bit of hope to all of the families of the men aboard that they were possibly still alive and just stranded somewhere. Though everyone involved had to know by then that finding any of them alive was growing rapidly more unlikely by the day. Finally, Crane was ready to prepare for his ultimate journey. He knew that he probably wouldn't be able to carry enough food and gear to walk his way out of the wilderness, so he cobbled together a sled that he could load with supplies and pull behind him. February 12th was the day he decided to set out for his big push. He headed out on the frozen river, pulling the supply-laden sled behind him. After just half a day, he knew that he had not designed the sled properly for the trek, which was kind of sad since he had gone to MIT for engineering. It was very hard to pull along the sled on the snow-covered ice. Plus, there had been a warm spell of a few days that had weakened the ice, and he was extremely paranoid of stepping in the wrong spot. But walking alongside the river across snow-covered boulders would have been beyond grueling and probably impossible. The first time that he broke through the ice, he got lucky, and he just got the outside of his muckluck wet, but it didn't seep through and it didn't even touch his skin at all. But the next time, he was not so lucky. He ended up plunging through the ice up to his chest, but thankfully the stubborn sled that he had been pulling turned out to actually be a bit of a lifesaver. Since it was so heavy and hard to pull along the ice, the weight of him falling through did not budget an inch, so he was able to use it to pull himself back out. He immediately started to start a fire. He tore off his clothes because they were going to freeze to him pretty quickly and parked himself nakedly beside the fire all night long, just trying to warm himself up and dry his clothes out. He eventually set up his tent and stayed the night there. He knew that that day was pretty much shot. The next day, he started out again, and the days began to pass in a blur, each one bleeding into the next with no real difference in activity or scenery. It was just grueling step after grueling step. A few days into this, and he came across a much older and more dilapidated cabin, but it was still upright and would provide a comfortable place to sleep a night or two. It was good timing as the temperature outside was plunging down towards negative 50, negative 60, and it was starting to snow. The cabin didn't really have much to scavenge, but he did come across quite a few canned goods, so he was able to eat some more varied food. And after a few days rest there, he decided it was time to move on. Despite the fact that the weather still wasn't that great. It was still snowing some and it was pretty dark and it was affecting the visibility and he knew pretty quickly that he'd made a bad choice going back out in the weather. Shortly into his walk this time, he and the sled both fell partially through the ice, but he was able to pull both himself and the entire sled back out and nothing really had been too damaged. He had to again tear off all his clothes, quickly make a fire, and sit nakedly next to the fire and dry himself out. 
He survived this event and was, you know, barely worse for wear, but this had really motivated him that he had to change his strategy. He didn't want to keep plunging into the ice and wasting days just sitting by a fire. He just didn't want to press his luck. He was worried that he'd actually die the next time. And in abandoning that plan, he realized he had to also abandon the sled idea as well. Because he just couldn't pull it along unless he was on the river. He found himself again traveling backward to the previous cabin he had stayed in to reassess his plan. Time had slowly moved forward, though he barely noticed, and it had become March by now. And despite the bad weather, he had a lot more daylight each day to guide him on his journey. He decided he would now travel along rather than on the river next to it. He knew that if this was the Charlie River and he kept following it, eventually he would come across people. He just had to put one foot in front of the other. Repeat that 1,000 times. <laughs> With this new plan set in mind, he parsed down his supplies and gear to what he could reasonably carry on his back for miles at a time. And during this leg of the journey, he would end up camping outside. Thankful that he'd come across a very warm sleeping bag in the cabins he had scavenged, rather than his previous parachute that he'd slept in so many times. He'd also scavenged a rifle and quite a few other helpful supplies. And as he was trekking onward, he had the realization that he'd probably now surpassed about 80 days lost in the wilderness alone. He could hardly believe it. But at the same time, it felt like he'd been walking forever. So shortly after he created this new plan and began to trek down the river again, he experienced yet another miracle. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He rounded a bend, expecting to see the same unchanging landscape. But this time, he came upon another cabin and the wonderful sound of a dog barking and signs of human habitation. And then he heard another human's voice for the first time in nearly three months. A man greeted him out of the cabin and introduced himself as Albert Ames. And in the understatement of the century, Crane introduced himself and said that he'd, quote, had a little trouble. Ames invited Crane in to get warm in his cabin and have something to eat and drink. When Crane told him about his long journey from the plane crash, Ames was totally blown away. He hadn't actually heard about the crash at all, and when Crane told him it had happened in December, he was even more amazed because, as he informed him, it was now March 10th. And he was happy to help Crane out and give him a warm place to sleep, re-energize, etc. The cabin was 
the best case scenario for Crane. It was populated with Ames and his wife and their children, and it was warm and smelled of cooking food, and there was coffee, which if you go without coffee for that long, you know that that's going to be heaven. Ames actually knew Phil Burrell, who owned the cabin where Crane had stayed for so many nights, and he told him that if he hadn't come along Phil Burrell's cabin, he would have been SOL, as it was the only cache along the entire Charlie River that still had supplies. And Crane showed Ames on a map where he believed that his plane had crashed, and what he assumed had been the basic route of his trek down the river, and found out it was about a hundred miles, not including all the backtracking that he had done. Crane and the Ames easily fell into a, a rapport, and he was invited to stay longer and eat whatever he wanted. Nina, the wife of Albert, was at the Baskin, and she had spent her whole life living as she was then, off the beaten path, with a heavy reliance on subsistence, including trapping, hunting, and fishing, much like the rest of her people. Albert had actually ended up there after a long, wild life traveling the world before he sort of randomly ended up in Alaska and fell in love with Nina. The family wasn't completely cut off from civilization. They made money selling fur and fish to others, and they had a dog sled, which meant they could get him somewhere else where there was also people. They were completely amazed at how healthy Crane looked after his long journey, and they took a photo of him in his entire Alaskan mountain man getup which I will be posting on Facebook and Instagram. And he definitely does not look like he just had a three-month walk. They helped him clean up, they cut his hair, and they gave him fresh clothing. He stayed there for a few days, got some good sleep, ate some good food, and within a few days, the two men set off on the family's dog sled to Woodchopper, Alaska, which was actually where Phil Burrell lived and was not actually the location of the cabin he had been staying in. Woodchopper was a pretty small place, not very many people, and not long after they arrived there, Crane became a, basically a celebrity. His story spread like wildfire, everybody heard it, and everybody wanted to meet this man that had just walked a hundred miles by himself in the middle of winter. And soon after they arrived, Ames gave Crane the chance to meet a man to whom he owed a massive debt. It was Phil Burrell. Burrell was in his 60s and was basically a local legend. He hadn't been to his cash cabin in years and was extremely glad to hear that it had helped Crane survive his ordeal. He invited Crane to stay a while at his main cabin in Woodchopper, and the two quickly became good friends, trading stories of their vastly different life experiences. Phil Burrell, I kind of picture him as Hemingway of the North. That's the image I get. Ames was going to go on to another settlement with a dog sled, and Crane had sent some notes that could be delivered via a radio there, which would go via telegram to Lad Field. He wasn't sure how long it would take for a scheduled plane to arrive at Woodchopper, so he just wanted to get the message out. 
He stayed the night at Burrell's cabin, and the two men stayed up late drinking and talking. Luckily, the plane arrived the next day in Woodchopper. A local family was set to fly out because the wife was due to give birth in a medical facility in Fairbanks, and Crane was perfectly timed to hitch a ride back to Ladfield. It was March 14th when Crane finally found himself boarding a small plane to head back to his base, which he almost expected never to see again. He just couldn't believe he'd actually made it. The whole thing felt surreal. Ladfield had yet to receive the news about Crane's survival, so as the plane was en route, the pilot radioed to the field, delivered the news that he was currently carrying the missing Lieutenant Crane and bringing him home, and he was very much alive. The operator informed them that, quote, there are a lot of people looking forward to his arrival. He wasn't kidding. When they landed, they were greeted by dozens of people, including an ambulance, just in case, and many of Crane's friends who couldn't wait to greet their long-lost pal that they thought was dead. He was brought to speak with the colonel and explained the details of the plane crash. Upon seeing Crane, the colonel began to cry. And soon there were even more tears when Crane was able to contact his family and tell them he was okay. But among all of the joyous greetings, there was some sadness. Crane learned that the site of the crash had never been found and that none of the other men had been found and were now suspected to be KIA. And while Crane had been a celebrity in Woodchopper, he was even more so when back on base. Everyone knew of his amazing journey and soon the story spread beyond the state and hit the national news and headline newspapers everywhere. Basically the man who came back from the dead. Crane got a checkup with a doctor and despite everything, he suffered basically no health problems because of his little trick. He hadn't even lost any weight, which is crazy. After a bit of a rest, Crane was ready to get back into action. He was able to take a short leave to visit his family, but then happily returned to normal duty at Ladfield. Nearly a year later, in October 1944, Crane would guide a recovery team to the site of the wreckage, where at that time they found the remains of Seibert and Wins, and it would be a lot longer before Hoskin was found. On the original night that he'd first returned from the wild, he'd gotten a brief checkup by a nurse who happened to be very pretty, and her name was Wilma. After his return to regular duty, they began to date, and in 1945, he married that girl. You just cannot make this story up. It's crazy. He retired from the Air Force that same year and went on to be an aeronautical engineer and worked at Boeing and other places. He and Wilma had six children. Throughout his life, he was always modest and he wasn't really into the whole celebrity status thing, and he absolutely refused to consider himself a hero. He truly had some survivor's guilt, and he would just say, I wasn't a hero, I just walked. And he would remain that way for the rest of his life. The only memory he kept of his ordeal was the photo he had taken with Albert Ames. 
He lived to the ripe old age of 83, passing away in 2002. He left behind his six grown children, Stephen, Thomas, William, Ruth, Rebecca, and Miriam, 10 grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. His wife, Wilma, outlived him by another five years. Towards the end of his life in the 90s, he had been able to meet with Harold Hoskins' brother, John, one time. He had gotten together with John and John's wife, and it was pretty awkward meeting because the whole incident was very difficult for all of them to discuss still, even decades later. And despite his hope, the meeting really didn't give John any more information on his brother's death or possible whereabouts because he was still missing. Also in the 90s, enter Douglas Begstead, a National Park Service historian who had a fascination with plane crashes and had become intrigued by the crash of the Iceberg Inez, knowing that Harold Hoskins' remains had never been found, nor had Richard Pompeo's. And he began visiting the crash site on a regular basis, and he, he took it upon himself to, basically as an archaeologist would, sort through the debris, small space by small space. And over the years, he cataloged many items of interest, and he appealed to the U.S. military to do a proper search. I'm not sure why they didn't before then. Finally, in 2006, the POW-MIA accounting agency agreed to do a search for the missing pilot. They meticulously sifted through the debris and began unearthing small pieces of bone and teeth. There was enough of the remains to do a DNA test against a family member. Harold's younger brother John was still alive, in his 80s and living in Maine, as a retired minister. He happily provided a sample of his DNA, and in March 2007 it came back as a match. In September 2007, 64 years after his death, 2nd Lieutenant Harold Hoskin a 28-year-old from Maine who had left behind his pregnant high school sweetheart and love of his life, got a full military service, and was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. It was attended by many military personnel, Hoskins' brother John and John's wife, and his daughter Joanne, who he had never got to meet. His wife Mary had remarried about 25 years after she lost Harold, and she had sadly passed away in 2005, very shortly before his body was found, which is really sad. Master Sergeant Pompeo's sister and nephew also made it to the memorial, along with Doug Begstead, the man who wouldn't give up on finding Hoskin. Doug had already met Crane's children, Bill and Miriam, because they had accompanied him in the summer of 2005 to follow their father's route down the Charlie River, which they did over the course of a week via raft and plane. They visited the various cabins along the river, which all still stood. It was 
a fantastic way for his children to sort of say goodbye to his legacy because he'd really never talked about his journey in life at all, not even to his close family members. So his children didn't really know exactly what he had gone through. And it was amazing for them to see what, how far he had come and the fact that they wouldn't have existed if he hadn't done that. Wens and Seibert had both been recovered from the crash site in 1944. Wins was buried in his home state of Nebraska, and he had the honor of having an airfield in Wyoming named after him. Much like Hoskin would be decades later, Seibert had also been given a full military procession and had been buried at Arlington National Cemetery. The same year that Crane's children met with Douglas Beckstead to follow his route, Richard Pompeo's nephew David accompanied Beckstead to the crash site, which was his uncle's last known location. A decade after his disappearance, a building at Ladd Field had been named in his memory, but his family still wanted answers. Unfortunately, the only knowledge of what may have happened to Master Sergeant Pompeo came from Crane, who didn't know much. He was about 90% certain that Pompeo had parachuted out of the plane before himself, and he likely rests in the hills near the Charlie River, but unfortunately, his remains have still never been found. He is just one of approximately 300 servicemen that were reported MIA in Alaska and nearby waters during World War II. I hope you guys have enjoyed hearing about Crane's story, and I wanted to tell you about the book that gave me quite a bit of information on this because it was a really good read. It's called 81 Days Below Zero. It came out just within the last few years, and the author's name is Brian Murphy. It was a fantastic read, and if you have any interest in history or World War II, definitely check it out. There was even so much more information in it than I needed for this because he gives really the backstory on everything involved in this story. And next up, I have been sort of nervous about this, but I'm going to be tackling the subject of World War II in Alaska, which is quite a lot more than you might expect. So I'll be working on that over the next few weeks, and I hope to get back at you guys, you know, by mid-April, if not by the end of April. <laughs> but I hope you like this episode. I hope you're liking these history ones, because I love them. This story really, man, I was crying reading it, because it was really touching. And I hope that you felt the same way, too. Until next time, good night.